welcome to Reasonable Faith, or the umpteenth year. I think we've been going for six years, if not seven. Um, and I'd like to say that all our recorded talks, all the work we've done in the years, are all available on the Highfields website. But forget it, none of them. But they will be. So we're looking for some miracles on that front. However, as you probably saw in those of you who were looking at the screen a few minutes ago, our visit from Bill Craig in the summer is up on the website. People Williams interviewed him in church, and some 5,000 people have listened, downloaded that interview, seven minute interview. But then we had him for a garden party, and I was distressed to find that nearly 2,000 people have gate crashed a private garden party. <laughs> So, actually, it's a point of view. Well, what we did, besides having lunch and nattering, we, we sat Bill in the centre of attention and he took questions from the, from the lawn and um, we had a sort of 45 minute seminar. So, that is available, that's on um, Bill Craig's. If you put in William Lane Craig Highfield, you'll probably find that and the interview with Peter. Um, so, those resources are available. As those of you who have been before know, we try to tackle the common objections. There are all sorts of highfalutin refined problems that people have with Christian belief which we don't seem to go near. Um, <laughs> we preoccupy ourselves with the big questions. And um, this term, we're doing the same subjects that we have done before again and again, except that we try to find fresh approaches to ways into the subjects and also some fresh speakers. So we've got Peter Lambrus from um, Portswood Church who's joined us this evening. And later on in the term we've got Merrick uh, Shrokov from uh, Community Church and Niv Lobo from UCCF and Peter Van Leeuwen from Navigators and James Pritchard and John Watts from Highfield and Chris Sinkinson from Morland's Bible College. Uh, will be more taken <coughs> into the programme. So there'll be some new voices, possibly some new ways in, and um, hopefully it'll be a lively and interesting uh, course. Some of the, the talks we do get written up and put on Be Thinking. I don't know whether you're familiar with the Be Thinking site, but I asked Peter how many papers he'd got up on Be Thinking. He thought probably a dozen. You actually got 27. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got 24 up, and I asked him this week because I wanted to know just. Does anyone look at this stuff? And the answer is that in the last two years, I've been up, someone's been up for eight years, in the last two years, over 100,000 people have downloaded just my stuff from Be Thinking, and I'm one of 250 authors mm. who write for the site. So if you haven't visited Be Thinking, there's a lot of stuff there that is all relevant to this course, and um, we're going to fine tune your questions to something there. The other thing that you well worth looking at in the books, Peter is, uh, Peter Williams is an author as well as a philosopher, he doesn't just think he writes good things. So there are three things there. And also we've got two books uh, by Bill Craig. Uh, Craig's books are £10 each. What, what, Same, yeah. You, you, I'll so do mine you, for a tenner, yeah. Thank you. All those are £10, £10 will throw. Good, so without further ado, let me introduce Peter. Peter is a philosopher, works for Demaris locally. When he's not globetrotting around the UK and Europe, 
lecturing on various philosophical subjects. And Peter's going to give us a, an initial introduction to uh, why we think there might be a God. Hey. Thank you very much. And as Peter number one says, because we've done this a number of times and you can listen to the way that I've done it before uh, on uh, the web, hopefully, I thought I would try a slightly different angle uh, in this evening and talk about uh, the role that intuition plays in belief in God and how intuitions uh, and belief in God connect to the subject of arguments for God or natural uh, theology. There's a fascinating little anecdote told by the philosopher Thomas Morris uh, about a table conversation between philosophers. And one of the philosophers pointed to a fellow thinker across the table who was known for his outspoken views on religious belief and said, if someone asked you to prove that there's a God, what would you do? Uh, The man being questioned took another bite of mashed potatoes, looked up and replied, I'd say, come into my garden and look around. He took a long drink of iced tea and started cutting his steak. Everyone waited, and he kept eating. That's all? His interlocutor responded, incredulous. Yep, he said. Now people at the table looked at each other, and the questioner tried again. But suppose I'm one asking the question, and you say that, and I go into your garden and look around like you told me, and I get no proof at all. What then? Now, the theistic gardener seemed puzzled at the other philosopher's confession of such possible obtuseness. He sighed aloud and then, with a world-weary professional tone, slowly responded, Well, I'd just say, look harder. I think that's a very interesting snippet of table conversation. And actually... One that I don't think is entirely unreasonable when you stop to think about it and stop to look at the garden. J.P. Morland and William Lane Craig, discussing the role that intuition plays in philosophy, say this. In philosophy, intuitions play a very important role. Intuitions aren't infallible, but they are prima facie justified. That's justified on the face of it. Sort of innocent until proven guilty, as it were. That is, if one carefully reflects on something, and a certain viewpoint intuitively seems to be true, then one is justified in believing that viewpoint in the absence of overriding counter-arguments. And of course, those overriding counter-arguments could only be persuasive to you because they're ultimately tracking back in the series of argumentative links to things that are intuitively obvious to you. Furthermore, an appeal to intuition doesn't rule out the use of additional arguments that add further support to that appeal. That there is a person of God is, uh, for most people, part of their native intellectual equipment. And uh, contemporary scientific studies of religion, in fact, bear this out. I mean, people believe in God because it just seems right that there is such a person as God. 90% of the world's population believes in God. Alvin Plantinga there, one of the world's leading philosophers of religion, talking about people's native intellectual equipment leading them to believe in God just because it seems obvious to most people that there's a God. Most people don't uh, approach this issue 
from the point of view of, right, I must go and study Thomas Aquinas's five ways and Anselm's ontological argument and make sure that I bone up on my modal logic. Most people just look at the world and go, oh, there's a god. British philosopher Richard Swinburne talks about what he calls the principle of credulity, the basic principle of knowledge that we ought to believe that things are as they seem to us to be until we have evidence that we're mistaken. Uh, and, and defends this by saying if you didn't follow this kind of approach, you end up incredibly sceptical about most things. Uh, you'd be incredibly sceptical about loads of things that actually it's, it's just obvious to us that we do know and have reasonable beliefs about. Uh, I guess it's the kind of approach expressed by Psalm 19 in the Bible. The heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse proclaims the handiwork, uh, the work of his hands. Day after day they pour out speech, night after night they communicate knowledge. There is no speech, there is no words, their voice is not heard, but their message has gone out to all of the earth and their words to the end of the world. You just sort of, ah, look. Cicero, the Roman philosopher, said, what could be more clear or obvious when we look up to the sky and contemplate the heavens than that there is some divinity of superior intelligence. And Cicero quotes a, uh, a parable from the Greek philosopher Aristotle, which I think is uh, very interesting. He says this, Aristotle brilliantly remarks, suppose there were men who had always lived underground in good and well-lit dwellings adorned with statues and pictures and furnished with everything in which those who are thought happy abound. Suppose, however, that they had never gone above ground, but had learned by report and hearsay that there was a divine spirit and power. They've only heard of the possibility of this second-hand. Suppose that then at some time the jaws of the earth opened and they were able to escape and make their way from those hidden dwellings into those regions which we inhabit. When they suddenly saw the earth and the seas and the skies and when they learned the grandeur of the clouds and the power of winds and when they saw the sun and realised not only by its grandeur and beauty, but also its power by which it fills the sky with light and makes the day. When again, <laughs> night darkened the lands, and they saw the whole sky picked out and adorned with stars, and the varying light of the moon as it waxes and wanes, and the rising and the setting of all of these bodies, and their courses settled and immutable to all eternity. When they saw those things, most certainly they would have judged both that there are gods and that these great works are the works of God. Thus far, Aristotle. Well, a more contemporary philosopher called Robert Coons uh, discusses the way in which uh, in his essays on the intellectual powers of man, the 18th century Scottish philosopher, contemporary of David Hume, called Thomas Reed, would cite the capacity to recognise the signs of intelligent agency as part of the basic equipment of the human mind. Now, this is a more 
a specific type of intellectual power uh, than Plantinga's uh, native equipment of the human mind, what he calls the sensus divinitatis, or Swinburne's application of the principle of credulity to certain types of religious experience. This is a particular uh, capacity of the human mind to recognise when intelligence is at work, just intuitively. Um, if I show you this picture of what part, watch parts, uh, no, no, Paley in the background here, but not only will you immediately recognise that all of these individual parts are the product of intelligence, but you will also notice that the distribution of these parts over the table is something that you can very easily get away with explaining without mentioning intelligence. It could be the case that each and every one of those components has been placed there deliberately by someone. But the obvious explanation for the arrangements of these watch parts is somebody tipped a lot of watch parts out of the table and they just randomly landed there. You can avoid mentioning intelligence intuitively speaking. If I show you those watch parts arranged into a watch, intuitively, your mind goes, intelligence. It's obviously very difficult to explain that arrangement of the same parts in terms that avoid mentioning intelligence. Now that's at an intuitive level. It's interesting to note that at a, at a, a theoretical level rather than a pre-theoretical level, you can go into some very complicated philosophy and mathematics as done, for example, by William Dembski in his Cambridge University press book, The Design Inference, looking at well, what is, at a theoretical level, going on when we make those kind of inferences? It is what Dembski talks about as the combination of complexity or unlikeliness and that unlikeliness hitting an independently knowable pattern or specification. And this criteria of specified complexity or unlikeliness is something that's not particularly controversial. Indeed, Dembski was inspired uh, to uh, lay out this uh, criteria by reading the works of Richard Dawkins, who endorses it. Writing in the magazine Free Inquiry, Dawkins says, specified complexity takes care of the sensible point that in the unique disposition of its parts, a pile of detached watch parts tossed about in a box is as improbable as a fully functioning, genuinely complicated watch. What is specified about a watch, and not the pile, is that it is improbable in the, in the specific direction of telling the time, whereas the pile of watch parts isn't. So if you look at famous presidents' heads carved into the mountain in America, Mount Rushmore, you can see four very complicated arrangements of rock particles. You look at the back of the mountain, you see a very complicated arrangement of rock particles. I mean, there's no other mountain in the world with a back side that looks exactly like that, or a front side that looks exactly like that. But what's different about the front from the back is obviously that these arrangements of rock parts hit independently known specifications. And again, intuitively speaking, 
we know the back. You don't need to invoke design. The front, it's design. And we don't really need very much information to securely and rationally make those kind of inferences. If I show you this picture, some scratches in a rock. Again, intuitively, your mind should tell you that's the product of intelligence. The anthropologists who discovered these scratches recently indeed were able to attribute them to Neanderthals <coughs> in about 40,000 BC. Robert Coons again says that the basic faculty of intelligence recognition considers the machinery of living things. And the clear answer it delivers is yes, there's intelligence and purposefulness displayed in this kind of machinery. This is a diagram of the famous or infamous uh, bacterial flagellum outboard rotary motor. Here I have a very short video from Harvard University, I think it is, showing some of the molecular machinery of life inside the cell. The, uh, the little rotary motor power stations charging up little electrical batteries. Yeah. Information strand leading the nuclear pore complex to go for uh, copying to make protein strands. The bacterial flagellum again, self-constructing outboard motor little machines that make machines. And information copying. Little rearranging struts that give structure to the cell are used as little roadways by little haulage machines to take packages from one place to another, etc. David Hume, famous sceptical Scottish philosopher and contemporary of Thomas Reed, said that a purpose and intention or design strikes everywhere the most careless, the most stupid thinker, and no man can be so hardened in absurd systems as at all times to reject it. So as Kuhn says, the inference from complex interdependent functionality to intelligent agencies, the natural, the default position, and the natural deliverances of our sense of intelligence can be defeated by means of a rationally compelling case. Still, there's an undeniable burden of proof that must first be assumed. For myself, I have to say with Keynes, I think that that burden of proof has not been met sufficiently and the presumption of design never uh, rebutted. Recently, the atheist philosopher Mary Midgley said this, the idea of natural selection, which is called upon to account for this vast creative surge since life began, is already looking increasingly inadequate to explain evolution. Natural selection is only a filter, 
And filters, I love this analogy, filters don't provide the taste of the coffee that pours through them. Similarly, the range of evolutionary alternatives between which selection takes place has to be there. That potentiality has to be there already in matter, and how it comes to be present there is the real mystery about creation. There are today increasing non-religiously based doubts about um, the natural selection mechanism as the explanation for evolution coming from atheist writers uh, such as I've uh, listed here. But even if you grant natural selection you can look at uh, the kind of machine-making machines analogy that Swinburne and Taylor famously use. And you tailor nature's not exactly like an establishment for the mass production of Ingersoll watches, but when all is said, is it not more like that than it's like the unending harlequinade with no point in particular? Nature is a machine-making machine, says Swinburne. Men not only make machines, but machines-making machines and may therefore naturally infer from nature uh, which produces animals and plants to a creator of nature similar to men who make machine-making machines. <coughs> and anyway, the theory of evolution, if you just leave that aside, it, it just doesn't apply to the organic and pre-organic preconditions of evolution, and therefore is unable to undermine intuitions based upon those preconditions. Um, Anthony Flew was particularly impressed by the problem of the origin of anything capable of undergoing evolution by natural selection, and partly because of that moved famously from his atheistic position to a broadly theistic position. What? Uh, the multiverse objection is often brought in at this point as a sort of ultimate backstop now it will be laid out as an argument and there's a crucial premise here, the idea that there are enough other universes out there to give us enough sort of alternative throws of the dice, as it were, to make the apparent complexity of the world not really unlikely at all. But that assumption of premise two is really fallacious, I think. It's a bit like saying if X number of chimps existed with enough typewriters and enough time, they could, by chance, reproduce the works of William Shakespeare. Well, sure. But if I show you a book of the complete works of Shakespeare, you don't immediately think, aha, gosh, there must be a heck of a lot of chimpanzees somewhere. <laughs> In the absence of independent evidence of the existence of enough chimpanzees with typewriters, typing, etc., the one author explanation is clearly rationally preferable. And uh, even scientists like the agnostic Paul Davis would note that like the proverbial bump in the carpet, the popular multiverse model merely shifts the problem that you're trying to explain elsewhere. It shifts the upper level from universe to multiverse because there has to be a universe generating mechanism to produce all of these uh, alternative universes with supposedly different laws and different tunings of laws and so on. And any such structure capable of producing all of these variety of universes itself would exhibit fine-tuning. So, appeal to uh, multiverse, I think, is fallacious. Appealing to evolution doesn't undermine intuitions 
stemming from those broader bases of intuition that we started with, even if you think it does something to undermine the reads a sense of intelligence. And many of these intuitions that we have are bound up with experiences of natural beauty, for example. They're not really design arguments as, as such, as really getting into the whole area of, of, of aesthetic, of value arguments. The atheist Ronald Dworkin recently, uh, in his book, uh, talked about on naturalism there is really fundamentally no such thing as beauty. And yet, he says, still we know that the sunset is beautiful. And what do you do with that in a naturalistic worldview, and where does that uh, lead you to? Thank you. Thank you so very much. Question time. I have a sort of question. I don't quite know how to express it, but mm. um, projecting our own intelligence onto the patterns that we see, mm. does that give us a survival advantage? I think I'm sort of doing the, <coughs> is it the idea of a creator mm. makes us feel more happy or is, gives us a more um, chance of our genes surviving? Mm. This thing that you call intuition, am I just saying? Yeah. It's, you know, can you, yeah, can you explain that away by giving an evolutionary account of... Um, if you try to go down that route, I think the difficulty is trying to restrict that mechanism to intuitions that lead you down the track towards thinking about some sort of theistic worldview without infecting the many other cases of, of intuition of design which you'd want to protect from that influence. Because um, if, you didn't ha if you didn't rely on those kind of intuitions then how would you actually do science, for example? How would you live your everyday life? Um, how can you avoid saying things like, well, you look at Mount Rushmore and you think it's designed, but actually maybe we can construct some sort of evolutionary explain-it-away account whereby, you know, it's all a Freudian projection or something, or, you know, um, uh, how, how do you wall off the, the intuitions that point towards theism from the other intuitions that you, which you would want to keep in order to re retain being a, a rational creature living in the world, being able to do science, being able to do your anthropology and go into a cave and say, oh, scratches, intelligence, when you don't even know who did the scratches. Uh, you know, you might then, having found the scratches, you might then have an argument, well, who did it? You know, was it some teenage boys from the local village? Was it even human beings? Is it animals? Well, no, you know, it wasn't Homo sapiens, it wasn't animals, it wasn't teenagers from the local village, it was Neanderthals. But that, that secondary discussion makes no sense unless you already have the basis of there's clearly something that we need to invoke intelligence here to, to explain. And that only becomes controversial when the thing you need to explain is obviously very hard to explain in terms of embodied potentially naturalistically explicable designers um, so uh, if you want to bring the psychology of it in you know you can also make the argument that that cuts both ways and say so people only become leery of this kind of intuition when it points in a direction that they don't like in terms of their 
pre-established worldview. Um, and if you want to get into a sort of psychology slaying match, that's you know <laughs> not going to be a very fruitful approach to take. Because I think the sword cuts both ways. Um, I'm not sure I'm convinced by your chimp uh, Shakespeare mm-hmm. uh, narrative because your your the intuition is based on our knowledge that there are that there was a Shakespeare writing place. Oh. If, if you assume that there yeah. weren't, because we don't know that there are countless gods, mm-hmm. so if you assume that there's no such, no such playwrights, and English doesn't even exist, no one knows what a play is, mm. then the idea of Thousands of chips eventually given time creating it's far more intuitively plausible than yes. something that we have no other. Yeah, but, but I think that's because you've now subtracted from my analogy our knowledge that there's a specification being hit. So that you've only described us discovering something that's complicated. And, and of course, I would grant you that <coughs> simply discovering something, something complicated is not enough us to be rational in saying it must be designed. It's the combination of complexity and specificity. So if you want to subtract our knowledge of Shakespeare and so on, okay, the first uh, manned landing on Mars touches down and discovers, um, you know, archaeological team roll out, they brush away the dust from the famous so-called face on Mars um, and discover, good grief, it actually is a giant sculpture of a head. Now we know, you know, we don't know who did it. We know we didn't do it. We've never been there before. We have no idea, you know, we have no pre-existing knowledge of alien life or whatever. But still, you know, it's obviously the rational thing to do to say, ah, okay, there's some kind of intelligence did this. Now let's move on to the discussion. Who's the best candidate for being that intelligence? You know, is it us? Is it time travelling humans from the future? Is it, you know, what? Well, we try to run to time. It's always a bit of a struggle. We can go on and explore some of these things and discussing about awe and what that is, the way we gasp at things. Mm. Um, but we uh, like to stop at six o'clock so that people can get off to other engagements. So it's time now to refill cups of tea. There's a kettle on the side.